0: All right. Well, welcome to River City. Good morning. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Grateful to get to join you for worship this morning. If you are new or visiting, uh, especially want to say welcome to you. Uh, We'd love to get to know you. I'd love to help you get plugged into the community here at River City. Like Becky was saying, small groups is a great way to do that. And, And so we'd love to just get to know you, help you get plugged in. Uh, Excited as well to continue working our way through the book of Philippians together. Uh, We've been, uh, we're actually nearing the end of our study of Philippians, uh, just about two or three weeks left in that. Um, But If you're just joining us for the first time, or you've been gone maybe, I know this last month has been busy for a lot of people, uh, let me just briefly catch you up on where we're at before we kind of dive into the beginning of chapter 4 this morning. And so, uh, Philippians, as we've talked about, it's a a letter that's written by the Apostle Paul uh, to a church that he helped plant about 10 years prior to to writing this letter. It was the very first church ever planted on the European continent, And, and the letter that Paul writes to them is one that's full of encouragement and thankfulness and joy joy and gratitude because the reality is that since the beginning since Paul helped start this church about 10 years ago that they've been characterized by a love for God and a desire for others to know him and they've been characterized by a a sacrificial generosity with their finances and by faithfulness to the gospel and the word of God and and honestly just a genuine gratitude for Paul and his influence and leadership in their lives and so in fact the, the very reason why Paul's writing to them now is because they sent somebody to go check on him they heard he was in prison they sent one of their leaders to go check on him and see what he needed and be able to take care of him if if there's anything that he needed and and so whenever paul thinks about them he's encouraged and he's full of thankfulness and joy to god for them and and yet in all the midst of all the reasons why Paul has to be thankful for this church and, and what God's doing in them, and where they're at spiritually, what you see as you read the letter is that Paul's desire for them is very clearly that they would continue to keep growing up in their faith. There's this perspective that permeates the letter, the idea that they haven't arrived yet that neither is Paul, that neither of you or I, and that, that we need to keep pressing into the work God is doing us. And Paul's longing for them is that he, he wants the good news of the gospel and the person and the work of Jesus to keep transforming this church, this group of believers, and, and allowing it to change their attitudes and actions and perspectives and and so instead of just patting them on the back and, and giving them an attaboy, what we see is he, he, he encouraged them to keep pressing into the often uncomfortable process of continuing to grow up in our faith. And as we wrapped up chapter 3 last week, what we saw Paul highlighting was that, is that those who are, who are doing that, those who are growing in their faith uh, continually, continually kind of pursuing this Christ-like maturity, he says that one of the things that, that is central to that, one of the things that they're all characterized by is that they live with an eternal mindset. Instead of living for the present, they live with their eyes set on eternity. He, he talked last week at the end of chapter three how they're not ruled or driven by their own passions and desires, by the pursuits of the things of the pleasures of this world. Instead, it's, it's their identity as citizens of God's heavenly kingdom. And it's the promise of Jesus' glorious return, that, that those are the things that drive their lives, that those are the things that captivate their perspective and that shape the way that they think and act and live. And as we begin chapter four this morning, what we're gonna see is that, is that having an eternal mindset isn't just key to growing up in your faith and maturing spiritually. What we're gonna see is that having an eternal mindset is essential to being able to stand firm in your faith not just to keep growing up, but to be able to stand firm in your faith and to remain steadfast over time in the face of all kinds of difficulties and desires that would seek to derail us as we seek to pursue Jesus. And and so what I want to show you as we study is that the the reason why having an eternal mindset is such a fundamental part of standing firm in your faith is because when we view all of life through the lens of eternity and, and the promises of God, what it does is it reframes the way that we look at the various situations that we face. It reframes those things for us, and it reorients our perspective on those things. And what it does is it enables us to approach the various situations and circumstances and desires that we face in life with with the steadiness that comes from having God's perspective and that comes from having His peace. So I can't wait to show you that this morning. There's such good stuff in here. And, and so with that in mind, let's pray, and then we'll dive into reading the passage. So God, we just uh, are grateful to get to come together this morning again and to worship with one another and to, and to worship you, God. And we're so grateful that you would have us to join together, and that you've given us your word so that we might uh, know you and worship you rightly. And God, we just come before you this morning, and we just humbly ask, just as we always do. Um, God, would you speak to us through your word? God, whatever it is that your spirit wants to get at in our own hearts, however you want to be renewing and restoring and correcting us, God, would you give us hearts that are able to receive that from you? Um, I'm just grateful that like our time together this morning doesn't hinge on me, um, but it hinges on you and your spirit. And so, God, I just want to rely on you in the midst of that. I don't have anything to offer apart from the power that comes from your Spirit. And so uh, we need you this morning. uh, As I teach, as we listen, we need you, God. And so we ask uh, for our good and for your glory that you do that in us, we pray. Amen. All right, We're going to be uh, chapter 4 in Philippians this morning, verses 1 through 9. But what I'm going to do is actually read the last two verses of chapter 3 first because that sets the context for chapter 4. Chapter 4 begins with the word therefore. And whenever it starts with therefore, you got to figure out what's the therefore, therefore. And so that's the last two verses. All right, So that's where we're going to begin. We'll go there. It begins this way. Uh, chapter 3, verse 20. Paul writes, he says, But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they'll be like his glorious body. Chapter four, therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and, and the rest of my co-workers whose names are written in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. and Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. And do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent and praiseworthy, think about such things. And whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. All right, there's so much good stuff in here for us this morning Paul begins the chapter with this call for Christians to stand firm in their faith, to stand firm in the Lord. That, that phrase, uh, stand firm, it, it means to plant your feet in order to offer resistance against something. It's a, it's a defensive posture that God calls us to take as Christians in the face of desires that might threaten to woo us away from God or cripple our pursuit of our Christ-like maturity and growing up in Him, as, as well as, as a defensive posture we take in the midst of difficult situations that might undermine our testimony for God or or undermine our our trust in him And, and what you see throughout the passages is that what Paul is doing is he's outlining a series of specific ways that we're to go about seeking to defend against those kinds of things a series of ways that we're to go about seeking to stand firm and to remain steadfast in our faith. And and when you look closely, what you see is that all the various ways that Paul urges Christians to stand firm, they're fundamentally rooted in allowing an eternal perspective, the eternal perspective of verses 20 and 21, the end of chapter 3 there, to kind of shape and to steady our actions and our attitudes in the midst of the turbulent kind of challenges of life and ministry. Verse 1, right, he says, therefore, because your true citizenship is in heaven and because you can be sure that Jesus is coming back to save us once and for all, he says, because those things are true, in light of that reality, stand firm. He says, allow that eternal reality to shape and to steady your life and ministry as you follow Jesus. And the first way that he wants that to happen is in the context of, of division in the church. And we, we saw in chapter 1 and 2 how, how the unity of the church and the unity of God's people is, is, not just, is not just one of the key ways that we show how valuable and how worthwhile the gospel is and all Jesus has done to make us citizens of his kingdom, but we saw as well is that the only way we'll be able to stand firm is, that, is when you face opposition to the kingdom of God in community. You can't do it as a lone ranger. You need to do it in the context of community. You can't stand firm in your faith alone. And, and Paul's applying that reality to the specific situation here. In verses 2 and 3, he, he's addressing these two ladies, he's imploring these two ladies in the Philippian church who were divided to pursue reconciliation. And he asks others in the church to help them to do that. Verse 2, he says, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And we don't know exactly what the reason for their beef was. Like we don't know exactly what is going on between these two ladies, or what the situation is. Um, all we know is that whatever was going on had gotten to the point between them that it was impacting the entire church. Right? Paul writes this letter. It's an open letter to a whole church. Right? And and uh, you can be sure he's not like outing this situation. Like nobody's like, what? Something's going on between those ladies. Like everyone's like, oh yeah. Good thing we we're addressing that, right? Like, like it had gotten to the point where it was affecting everybody, right? And for obvious reasons, that's uh, that's a problem that, that needs to be that needs to be dealt with. But Paul doesn't just tell them to get over it. He doesn't just say, you know, let bygones be bygones, put it in the past, right? He doesn't take sides and say one person's right, one person's wrong. Um, He doesn't even tell them they need to agree on whatever the thing was that was dividing them. Instead, he pleads with them to be of the same mind in the Lord. And that phrase, that should sound real familiar to us. Because just a couple of chapters earlier in chapter 2, he's writing about the unity of the church. And he says, in your relationships with one another... Have the same mindset. And he says, it's the mindset of Jesus. It's a mindset he described in chapter two that's characterized by humbly valuing others above yourself, by putting their interests above your own. And so what Paul's doing is he's urging these two ladies to adopt that kind of a mindset towards one another. He's not telling them you need to agree about exactly what's going on here, but he's saying, I want you to have Jesus's attitude for each other, because that is not what's going on, right? If the whole church knows about whatever beef is going on between them, that's not the attitude that they have. And in order for that to happen, what he says is that they're going to need to zoom out a little bit. Now, I don't know about you, when, when you're at odds with someone, when you're in the midst of a disagreement, right, when it feels like somebody has wronged you or whatever it might be, right, what happens is, is I, I'm guessing, you know, I'm just going to assume it's not me, right? But what happens is we tend to zoom in. To all of the details of those situations don't we right we tend to kind of replay those situations over in our mind and we like hyper analyze that stuff and we latch onto all the details about exactly what somebody said or didn't say or did or didn't do or whatever it might be right we're focusing on all the details about why we're right and they're wrong and and the longer it goes on what happens is the is like that's just all you can think about is the details and the minutia of whatever was happening. But in verse 3, Paul asks, he says, he asks his true companion, it's, this, this, uh, it's a name, we're not sure if it's a specific person, uh, it could be a proper name, it could just be a reference to like the church as a whole, we're not exactly sure, but he asks, he asks them to help these ladies to zoom out and to look at their situation and their disagreement from a new perspective and an eternal kind of perspective. Verse four, he says that they're both co-workers for the cause of the gospel whose names are written in the book of life. That's the book of life. That's God's record of those who belong to him. Paul's saying to these ladies, he says, whatever is going on between you, whatever was dividing you, he says, I want you to start to look at it through the lens of eternity. He says, in the end, you are on the same team. Both of you, you want the gospel to go forth. That's the thing that matters the most. And he says, both of you, both of your names are written in the book of life. He saying, Jesus died for both of you. And both of you put your faith in him. And so no matter what, you both are going to spend eternity together in heaven with him forever. And he says, let that eternal reality shape the way that you relate to each other now. Let those eternal realities shape the way you relate to each other now. Let it produce in you a humility towards one another that leads to unity in the midst of your differences. Not because you're the same. Not because you have everything in common. Not because it's easy. Let that kind of Christ-like attitude enable and produce unity in the midst of those differences. Let Jesus' death for each of you help you die to yourselves so that you might live for him and the good of one another and the good of the church. So these two ladies, they, they needed an eternal perspective to shape and to steady them in the midst of the division that they were facing. Maybe you do too this morning. Maybe you are in the midst of a disagreement with a spouse or a friend or someone in your small group or whatever it might be. And it feels like whenever you think about that situation, it just feels like you zoom into all the details. And I want to invite you this morning in response to God's word, zoom out. Ask God to help you see the reality of, and to help you frame that situation in light of eternity, in light of the relationship you have with a brother or sister in Christ, in light of the reality that Jesus died for you both. Ask God to help you reframe that stuff so that you might stand firm in your faith. And so these two ladies, they needed that eternal perspective to shape and steady them in the midst of their division, but they also needed it if they were going to be able to do what Paul says next, which is to rejoice always, right? Verse four, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. It feels like the total words of a parent right there, you know? Like, okay, I knew you didn't hear it the first time, so I'm going to say it again just based on assumption because of the track record that we have here, right? You see, there's, there's all kinds of situations that are hard to rejoice in. I, I don't know about you, rejoicing in the midst of a disagreement you're having with a close friend, Like, that is a difficult situation to rejoice in, right? Uh, Rejoicing when you broke your leg playing with your kids at the park at the very beginning of spring, that's difficult, if I'm honest, right? It's difficult. It's like somebody in my small group, you get into a car accident and you're trying to find a new car in the middle of a global chip shortage. That's difficult to rejoice in, right? Or maybe like my neighbor, you find out you have cancer and you need to start chemo in the midst of a global pandemic. Those situations are hard. They're difficult to rejoice in. And the only way that you can rejoice always, rejoice in the midst of difficult situations, is when your joy is not rooted in circumstances, but it's rooted in an eternal reality. John Newton, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, he puts it this way he says, If you understand the promises of the gospel, he says it makes the worst times bearable and the best times leaveable. When the eternal realities of the gospel, when that when that sinks into your heart, he says it makes the good times leaveable and the worst times bearable. What he's saying is that is that when you get that, when the gospel is good news to you, when you realize that your eternal hope is secure and that no matter what happens that Jesus has got you, that, that your name is written in the book of life, that no one can take you out of his hand like First Peter says, he is keeping an inheritance for you in heaven that cannot perish or spoil or fade and what happens is in the midst of the worst kinds of situations you can still have joy because it's not your situations that are producing joy in you but it's so important you see that it's also what he's saying as well is that it's in the midst of the best situations that you can have a kind of joy that can't be ripped out of your hands at any moment you see even the best situations If our our joy is rooted in our circumstances, it is always insecure. Because the job that you love can get taken away in a moment. And your kids that you cherish, you're not the one who's ultimately in charge of them. And the things that you own are not really yours. And if our joy is set in the midst of having things and situations going right, even if it feels like you are flying high, you are on wildly shaky ground. And yet if the reality of eternity is the thing that produces joy in you, if what you see is that the joy that you have, like the gifts that you have are good gifts from God, but that you're not after that stuff, but you're after him, then you have a joy that's not sh- that's not shakeable, And you can rejoice in the right things in the good times, And then in the midst of seasons where there's lack and seasons of difficulty, your joy isn't just ripped out from under you because you have a joy that's set in something that can't get taken away. And the reason, and so that that reality is just like it leads us to being able to be steady no matter what life throws at you. And and that leads us to the next thing that Paul wants, he, this eternal perspective to shape and to steady us so we can stand firm. And the reality is that I think, in, I think is that instead of being characterized by rejoicing in every situation, I think the reality is that a lot more of the time we're characterized by worrying in every situation, right? Like it's like impressive the amount of things we can find to worry about and situations we can find to like figure out as things that things could go wrong in. And And in the next couple of verses, what Paul's doing, he's showing us how to course correct some of those realities. And and again, it's rooted in allowing an eternal mindset to reorient and reframe our perspective. In verses 5 through 7, he writes, he says, Let your gentleness be evident to all. We're going to come back to that word because that's a really challenging word to translate precisely. But he says, Let your gentleness be, be evident to all. The Lord is near. and Do not be anxious about anything but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That word, gentleness, when Paul says, let your gentleness be known to all in verse 5, it's actually a, two, it's like a two-word phrase in the original language. And if you read a bunch of different English translations, what you'll find is that pretty much every translation has a slightly different word. Because it's just a really hard phrase to kind of translate precisely. Some translations say gentleness or reasonableness or patience, but one commentator kind of sums it up this way what that phrase is really talking about. He says, is that it's a very specific phrase, is getting at this idea of being characterized by a humble, Patient steadfastness, which is able to submit to even injustice and disgrace and mistreatment without hatred or malice. It's, one, it's, a, it's a phrase, it's an idea that's full of this idea of trust in God. Essentially what Paul is saying is that I want you to be characterized, I want it to be evident to everybody that you're full of a humble, patient steadfastness. Essentially what he's saying is, uh, that's, that phrase is the opposite of worry. It's basically just the opposite of worry. It's steadiness and peace in the midst of trials and turbulent times. And Paul says that our ability to do that is rooted in the reality. He says that the Lord is near. The Lord, the sovereign king and creator of the universe. The one who Paul says in chapter 3, verse 20, whose power brings everything under his control. He says that God is near. He's near both spatially and temporally. He's near to his people who call on him. We see that throughout scripture. And his glorious return, Paul says, is imminent. And so Paul says, he's not far off and distant. He is present. And like a loving father, he is near and longs to protect those he loves. And like a victorious king, he is coming to rule and to reign. No one and nothing can hinder him. When Paul goes on in verse 6 and 7 to talk about how prayer is kind of the, the treatment, the cure for anxiety, what he's not saying is that, like, he's not saying, like, a prayer a day keeps the worry away, right? Like that's, not, like, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that the reason why that prayer is the antidote for anxiety is because when we pray, what we're doing is we are reframing our perspective and reframing the situations that we're facing in light of the eternal reality that the sovereign Lord of creation is near. That's why prayer is the antidote to our anxiety. It's not just some like religious ritual where you just kind of like pray some words and then then anxiety is gone. That's not how that works. What prayer is about is about reframing our situation in light of what's true eternally. That's why thanksgiving is such a key part of that anxiety removing prayer, right? We're not just telling God what we're worried about. You see, he says, with prayer and petition and with thanksgiving. Make your request known to God. That thanksgiving part, it's about reminding ourselves about all the reasons why we have to be thankful that God hears us, that we know that he answers us. It's about rehearsing in our minds all the ways God's been faithful, the way he's proved himself, the the reasons why we can trust him. That's why we're thankful. Prayerful thanksgiving is like worries kryptonite, right? Because what you're doing is you're reminding yourself about all the reasons why the crap you're worrying about is not superior to the God you're talking to. You see, prayer and worry are actually very similar things, and we don't think about that, but they're actually very similar things one pastor puts it this way, he says, both of them are functionally a rehearsing of our circumstances, a mulling them over, a kind of mental and emotional chewing on those things. See, the, the difference, though, is that, is that when our anxious thoughts, when we're just characterized by anxiety, all that produces is actually more anxiety, because the reality is studies often have shown this. The stuff that we worried about is, is almost always things that are, we do not have control over, almost always things you don't have control over. See, but when we pray, what we're doing is we're talking to the sovereign king and creator of the universe who not only has the power to actually do something, but who you know loves you and longs for your good. And so you get to talk to that kind of a God who is both powerful and good. And that changes you. Paul says when we pray like that, when we allow the eternal reality of God's sovereign and loving nearness to reorient our perspective, what Paul says is what happens is the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, guards your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. That word guard there, it's this very vivid word that it refers to the idea of an army standing guard around a city, protecting it from invasion. You see, and when you know that you have a whole army protecting you, you can sleep good at night. You have peace. You're able to rest. And Paul says the peace of God that comes when we view our situations in light of his power, it's like that. It's like an army that surrounds our hearts and minds so you can rest. Because what you know is that you don't just have an army surrounding you, you have the loving arms of God himself wrapped around you to keep you safe. And that no matter what happens in this life, He has eternity secure for you. And so you can have hope and peace and rest in that. It's an otherworldly kind of peace. So when that can't just be easily explained. There's a, there's a story I came across this week about Abraham Lincoln. It's told about him during a, a season or a specific time during the Civil War. And, and there, was, there was panic kind of setting in in the north and especially in Washington, D.C. because uh, General Lee had led an army of almost 80,000 men all the way into Pennsylvania. So they were, they were getting really close to Washington, D.C., And yet, what's reported about Lincoln in the midst of that time of when everyone is panicking, President Lincoln is quoted often that he remained strangely confident. Later, a general asked him how he did that, what was behind that. He responded simply by saying, he says, when everyone seemed panic-stricken, I went to my room, I got on my knees before Almighty God, and I prayed. Soon a sweet comfort crept into my soul that God Almighty had taken the whole business into his own hands. You see, what's happening is that like, he, Lincoln got that. You see, when, did you notice how we refer to God as the Almighty God? The God who actually had power to do something that he had no power to do. So he's reorienting his mind around that kind of a God, his sovereign authority, his eternal power, and it produced a peace in him. See, the peace of God is some, it's not something that's just mysterious or incomprehensible. It's a, peace that, it's a kind of peace that can only be explained by a trust in an almighty creator. And as one pastor puts it, when we live with a lack of anxiety about the future, Even in those tightrope kind of times, he says, we communicate the truth that our God is indeed worthy of our trust. We don't have to fret over the future because he holds it in his hands. And we don't have to wring our hands in worry because we know that he is charting the course. He says that sort of confidence invites others into it. It's not just good for your heart, it's good for others. You see, standing firm is something we have to do together. And I think so often what I see is that it's easy for us as Christians to get our kind of like minds wrapped around the axle of like whatever situation or circumstance is going on, whether it's politically or socially or whatever it might be, and just kind of get like wound up. And then the things that we start talking about and worrying about and all that kind of stuff is just like, what's going to happen if this person gets in charge or this situation happens or this whatever is going on? We just kind of get wrapped around the axle. And you lead other people into fear when you do that. And What Paul says is that that we can be characterized by a peace from God that that transcends circumstances and that helps others to actually have that kind of peace as well. The part of standing firm and having the peace of God is about helping others to do it as well. And so if we want to have peace and be able to stand firm, what we're going to need to allow is the, for an internal perspective to reorient and reframe the way that we view all of life and ministry. But there's one last thing that we see Paul doing in our passage in verses 8 and 9. He's, one last way he's urging us to, to stand firm in our faith. In verse 8 and 9 he says it this way, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. It's often uh, said in sports that the uh, the best defense is a good offense, because what happens is when you have a good offense is you never let the other team get into a spot where they can establish a rhythm, right? And can kind of set up a foundation and, and really press back against you. And the same is true spiritually, as we seek to stand firm and defend against all kinds of desires and difficulties that might derail our pursuit of Jesus. One of the best ways to do that, one of the best ways to stand firm is to actually go on the offensive, to spend time, Paul says, thinking about, filling our thinking on, filling our hearts and minds with the kinds of things that point us towards God and away from sin. that that word when paul says at the end of verse 8 to think on such things he's not just talking about like just thinking about an idea that that phrase it means to drill down and to ponder and to gnaw things over to meditate on them it means to kind of continually pound those things into your head to dwell on them you see standing firm is 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 a result of releasing anxiety to god but it's also a result of embracing the things that point us to him you got to say no to anxiety, but you have to say yes to the kinds of things that remind us about him and set our eyes on him. Matt Chandler, he says it this way. He says, we're not meant to simply park our minds around ethereal virtues and good ideas, but rather to set our minds on things that come from Christ, commend Christ, and consummate in Christ. You look at that list, what you see is that Jesus is true. He is right. He is noble. He is pure. He is lovely and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy. He's the epitome of all that stuff. They're not just virtues for the sake of virtues. They're things that point us to Him. And when we set our minds on those things and put them into practice, Paul says, what we're doing is pursuing Him. And one of the... see, See, it's one thing to desire the peace from God. It's one thing to desire peace from God, but more importantly, what we need to do is set our hearts on the God of peace. Paul says at the end, when we think on those things and put them into practice, he says the God of peace will be with us. Not just his peace will be with us, but himself. You see, the God of peace is the one who makes peace between himself and sinners, And it's the peace that we have with God and because of him that we're reminding and celebrating when we take communion each week. It's this reminder for us that on the cross, God made peace with us so that you and I might not just have peace with him forever, but you and I might be able to experience the peace that comes from his presence with us now. And so communion doesn't make us right with God and it doesn't save you. Instead, it's this chance for us to remember you have peace with the King and the Creator of the universe. No one and nothing can stand between you and Him. The eternal future He has secured for you is not something that can be shaken. And so in the midst of the chaos of life, in the midst of division, in the midst of difficulties and trials and all kinds of turbulence, you can have a confidence and a sureness that can't be shaken. So if you're here today and you've put your faith in Jesus, if you know the God of peace, then whenever we're ready, whenever during our ready during our time of worship after the sermon here, I encourage you, go back and take communion. You can dip the bread in the juice and dip it uh, in, the, in the back. There's a table on the left and on the right. And do it as a chance for you to remember that the God of peace has made peace with you by his blood shed on the cross so that you might not just have peace with him but experience his peace in the midst of life see, but there are some of you who are here this morning and your lives are characterized by division and anxiety and worry and a lack of rejoicing. And the reason why that is is because you do not know the God of peace yet. And you've been trying all kinds of tips and tricks and strategies to get peace in your life, but you don't have it and you never will because without knowing the God of peace himself. And so this morning, I want to invite you not just to pursue peace with people and peace within, but I want to encourage you to pursue peace with God himself. And the way that you do that is by faith in Jesus. When you put your trust in him, you have peace with God that leads to peace in everywhere else in your life. But some of you are here and worry and care... Worry and anxiety and division, those things still characterize your life, even though you know the God of peace. And the reason why that is the case is because you are constantly looking at life through the lens of your own eyes. And you see things through a temporal perspective. And what you need to do is to see it with God's eternal eyes. And I want to encourage you this morning, not just to reject a view of things that has not here and now on the front burner, but to repent of that kind of an attitude and to ask God to say, God, I need the good news of your sovereign nearness and the promise of your eternal kingdom. I need those things to keep shaping the way that I live and act and think now. I need you to cause those realities to sink deeply into my heart. Some of us are so full of worry and anxiety, right? Because we're trying to let control be the thing that gets us peace. You'll never have enough control. You'll never have, you will never be able to control all the variables. You will always be full of anxiety because you can't control it. But there's a God who you can trust in the midst of it that can and some of you are trying to get peace through, the, through finding comfort. And you will never have peace through comfort unless you know the one who offers the real comfort you're looking for. And you can't find peace apart from him. And no strategy is going to get you there. All you need is to rest in the God of peace himself. And the internal promise that he has that in the midst of all the situations you cannot control that he's actually in charge, that the future he has secured for you cannot be shaken. And so whatever happens, you can trust in him and you can rest because in the end, he's got you. There's life there, there's hope there. There's hope that your kids need to see there. There's peace that your friends, they need to see apart from circumstances. There's hope that your family, they need you to show them that comes apart from situations. And so I'd implore you, stop looking to strategies to get you peace or to control or comfort or power or whatever it might be. Start looking to the God of peace and pursue him. Talk with him. Let him reorient your perspectives around the confident future he has in store for you around his sovereign nearness being good news. Ask him to do it in you. You need him to do that in you. And your kids need him to do that in you and your family and your friends and your coworkers. They need that from you. So ask God to give you his eyes and help you to apply the good news of his eternal reality to your hearts in all of the situations you face. Let it be good news that shapes you. Let's pray. Jesus, we're so grateful for you. And we are so thankful that the power that enables you to bring everything under your control is the same power we can count on to raise us from the dead and to give us new life eternally with you. Jesus, we need that perspective to shape our lives every day. And the reality is, I know in my own heart, God, I don't live that way. I don't always live with that perspective in mind. And so God, by your spirit, would you keep reminding me of the confidence that we have because of you, because of Jesus' finished work on the cross that makes us right with you and that secures our names in the book of life. God, would you allow our eternal security with you to give us a security in the midst of every situation that is good news to our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers and our kids. We need that from you, God. Our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers, they need it too. And so, God, would you be gracious to reorient our perspectives, to reframe them in light of your eternal sovereign nearness. Might that be good news that causes us to live full of hope and joy in you no matter what we pray. Amen.